Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. This is Lainey from the Library Love Fest team. Thanks for joining us again for a new podcast episode. Today, we're back with an Editors Unedited episode, and I would like to welcome Carrie Farron, SVP and Executive Editor at Avon and William Morrow. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And you have a very special author interview coming for us, so I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce our author. Today I'm talking with Sarah McLean, who's um, both my beloved author and beloved friend, and she's a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, and her new book is coming out this summer called Bombshell, and it's part of her new series, Hell's Bells. Hell's Bells Book One. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I always love being on the podcast for Library Love Fest, which makes me happy. Because we love libraries. We do. We do. I was talking to somebody the other day about um, when I was growing up, I think I may have actually told this story on a past episode, but I'll, so I'll just like shorthand it. But um, when you were younger, I don't know if you ever looked, if you were ever in libraries looking at romance novels, um, but readers would mark them up in the back of the book. They would like, put hieroglyphs on the back page. I'm not recommending everyone out there. I know most of you are librarians and I want to just say I'm not endorsing defacing <laughs> books. <laughs> but when I was young and in the library sort of trying really hard to find every book I could with Fabio on the cover, it was very useful because they would mark the back, of, you would mark the back of the book if you'd read it. And at the time, all the covers had, you know, half-naked Fabio. Fabio and gravity-defying <laughs> hair. <laughs> Um, and then in my library, the readers would mark them with their like little symbol. And then they would put a very respectful exclamation point at the bottom of the page if they liked it. And so like you could go through and pick the books that had the best, the best readings. <laughs> this was like Goodreads 1.0. <laughs> well, I never did that. But as you know, when I edit books, I, um, I put little hearts next to the parts that I like. So it's kind of a, a trip back to your childhood in yeah. a certain kind of way. Marginalia. I know. I, smiley faces are my favorite. My least anyway, favorite don't... is every once in a while you'll say show don't tell. And it's like a stake through the heart. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes the book better. And that's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's um it's so fun to be publishing Bombshell. It's um it's our first book that's going to be in our new size format, which is just a little bit bigger. And I think it's really attractive. We we worked really hard to make this cover attractive. And do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, well, first I want to say this new format, the Mass Max, is so feels so nice in your hands. I was nervous right because I'm a romance reader so I sort of was clinging to the mass market paperback as like what are right. you doing you're taking away my 
my beloved, but this is so, it feels so weighty. It's really nice. Um, yeah, the cover, gosh, Avon did such a beautiful job with it. Um, well, we knew she needed to look like a bombshell, right? Right. Because I remember going bombshell. back and forth with you about that. Like she needs to look, you were like the tightest bombshell. She has to look the part. Yeah. Um, so and of course so, she's wearing a red dress. Red dress. Um, she's in this like really lush space. It's nighttime. And then we talked about somehow making it, we knew that this series was going to be, was going to be somehow real as though, as though all the other Sarah McLean books are not extra. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that bombshell, the hell's bells would be extra, extra. And so we kind of wanted to set it apart. So we picked that type and and yeah, I, the type is the type is unusual and things that people don't usually use. Yeah. And then the back cover <gasps> it's like also treasure. features um, the couple. Yeah, the um, clinch is on the back very cover. Very sexy. Yeah. And um, that's an old, that's old Avon, it feels. There was a time when there were some Avon titles. I mean, for those of you out there who remember. Right. Um, it was treasure, right? That was the it line was called that had treasure. These, yeah, yeah, and they had these clinches on the back. Um, yeah, and I remember when you said, you know, what what should we do with this new format size? You know, we talked and about it, and I feel really lucky that this clinch ended up on the back. It looks great, it's sexy. Mm -hmm. The cover looks great. Um, the title's great, but the insides are great too. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things about this book. Oh, actually. Um, Sarah, I wanted to go back for a second yeah. and talk mm -hmm. about um, about the clinch and the fact that you talked about the clinch this year or this this week in um, in ninety nine percent invisible. Right, you want to my talk favorite a bit about podcast. That? I do. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's my favorite. So ninety nine percent invisible is a podcast um, that many of you have probably heard of. It's been around for years and years, and um, it's a design podcast. And I am in no way artistic, but um, it's a really fascinating podcast where they talk about the way things are designed in the world, and this concept that ninety nine percent of design is actually invisible to you. So there's an episode. Well, there's there's an episode on, say, water fountains and how water fountains are designed and where they're put in cities or, you know, libraries and how libraries are designed. There's a really fascinating episode that is about ballots and how ballots are, you know, literal voting ballots are designed and how they look different in different places. Um, <clears throat> and my favorite episode of 99% Invisible was about uh, was about perfect security and an unpickable lock. Which and, led to one of your books. Yes. Yeah. I was listening to it in the car and I was like <laughs> percolating Wicked in the Wallflower, which was the first book in my last series, The Bare Knuckle Bastards. And I was like, oh, this is it. The heroine's going to be a lock pick. She's going to pick the unpickable lock, his, which is historically accurate. Um, and the bare, the bare Knuckle Bastards would not look the way that it did without this podcast. So about two months ago, I got an email from a producer there saying, she had a mom, her mom was a romance novelist who had gotten her first cover and it had a clinch on it. And would I be willing to talk to her about romance novels and covers? And I immediately said yes. And I had the best time largely because I'm also a fangirl. Um, but we talk, it was so respectful. And I think 
rare that it's so respectful. And I was so happy with it. And they interviewed uh, not just me. They also interviewed Max Ginsburg, who their famous artist painted a lot of those old covers, the the famous old covers with yeah gravity defying hair. Lots of I was on his website the other day. He painted a bunch of Lisa Kleypas. Yes, early. he did. I was going to bring that up. He did, <laughs> and who's he... also one of your authors. Yes, she is. Um, who also has a book out this summer. So yes, uh, but um. You know, going um, going back a little bit to this book and this new series, what's interesting is you've gone from the Bare Knuckle Bastards, which was about a group of men, mm-hmm. and now Hell's Bells, um, Bells being the bell with an E on the end, is about a girl gang. Yep. And, I feel like this, um, was, this was my natural. This is where I've been going the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've written a lot of brotherhoods that have a woman who's basically the most important person in the group. So as, came, as she should be. It came time <laughs> that I was like, you know, do we even need these <laughs> these men? Let's just make it all women. Um, yeah. But I, it's it's a heroine we've met before. Yes. Cecily Talbot, um, who's a fan favorite. I mean, she is. I think she's probably the character I get the most emails about. When is Cecily's story coming? And I knew when I, so she was in Scandal and Scoundrel, the series that began with uh, The Rogue Not Taken and ended with Day of the Duchess. And I knew then that she was special. And I always sort of thought, oh, well, you know, when I can see you, Carrie, you know this. I mean, when I conceive of a series, I conceive of it in a whole, it's a complete arc. I don't think that means you have to read them in order. You don't. You know what? You don't. In most romances, you don't ever have to start in any particular place. You can go back and forth and be perfectly happy as the reader, I think. Um, I I think that I would press this into anyone's hands as a first Sarah McLean, and they would be thrilled. Yeah. I mean, I think this one especially really is it's the start of a new, you know, piece. But um, the idea was. Originally, I had sort of planned, and I think I talked to you about, oh, well, Cecily will just get a Christmas novella or something. And then while I was working on Bare Knuckle Bastards, I realized, oh, no, she's, I'm, I had the idea for Hell's Bells. And I was, I was, it, I knew that it was coming. And um, I knew Cecily, it just made sense that this like bombshell of a kind of wild child heroine, because she and all her sisters inherit, they were very rich and their father won a title in a game of cards. And so they didn't have any connection to the aristocracy or v- reverence for it. And so she could just be this kind of, she could join <laughs> the, the bells and, you know, think, live her um, best life. <laughs> I think that um, on the back cover, it says she's London's biggest scandal. Mm-hmm. And if that's not intriguing, I don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, she, she belongs to this, group of women and they all have particular skills which is really fun yeah I mean well when you when you sort of throw out this idea that you're going to when you when you say I'm going to write a girl gang then you have to deliver right there have to be there so Hell's Bells is larger than these four women there are lots of other characters the the world is really expansive um in large part because it's also connected I mean Every single book of yours is connected in some way to another one. Um, I think your books are different than most writers in that a lot of people create a world for a series 
And I feel like you create mini series within a much larger world. Right. Victoria Aveyard writes these, um, writes YA fantasies. And I heard her not long ago on a different podcast talking about um, world building. And she said the best, the hallmark of world building is when you feel like you could open any door in the room that you're reading about. And in the next room, a whole different book is happening. And you just could walk in there and then be in a completely different story that's maybe not even a fantasy. Like it's just something else. And I really love that because I feel like that I'd, I'd never thought of it that way, but that is how I write. There's sort of yeah. a sense that all these worlds, all these series are connected. They're all at the same time in the same London. And yeah. Um, which is really fun because if I need a dressmaker, you know, it's always going to be Madame Hebert. Right. If it's, right. you know, it's also a good cheat, right? I never have to yeah. invent a new person. <laughs> if they want to go to a casino, I've got a casino. For yeah, them. you yeah. have a casino. And and the interesting thing about Cecily is she not only belongs to this badass group of women, she's also one of the sisters. Yes. So that was really fun. I realized when, this is where you get tripped up though in this particular book. So Cecily had been a secondary character in that series who was really there. The Day of the Duchess is um, the final book in that series. And it is, it has a weight to it that is very different than say Bombshell. Like it is, it's a very emotional book about, you know, loss and grief and, you know, healing. And she is the sister of the heroine in that book. And she was there really as comic relief. Like, you know, there had to be something that lifted up the right. heavy moments. The problem is, is that when you take a character who is comic relief in one series and you make her the heroine in a new series, immediately it lifts the whole series into the realm of really fun, I hope. I mean, that's what yeah. I really hope everybody gets out of this. Yeah. Is Hell's Bells is going to be really fun to read. It is fun. Um, it's fun. There's, and there's, there's fighting. There's fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody who loved the boxing and bare knuckle bastards, there's no boxing in this book, No, but there's female I mean, combat. I think we can spoil it. Cool. There's like a bar brawl on page like 50 of this book. <laughs> um, Joanna Shoup likes to say that the hallmark of a Sarah McLean novel is someone getting justifiably punched in the face and I was like surely that's not true is it true for all like 17 things I've written and in fact it is <laughs> um and in this case it really is about like sometimes uh, what we've done is what I think I've done is I've taken it from I think in the last series a lot of a lot of it was about you know women's anger at the way the world treats them but in this series it's women kind of banding together to just be badass and take on the world. And um, that means sometimes you have to justifiably punch someone in the face. <laughs> but not in real life. Have you ever punched anyone in the face in real I life? I have never, I have never. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would, I feel like there's a lot more pain involved for the people who do the punching also. Yeah, I mean, I think it hurts your hand. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Um, you know, one thing that you write about a lot is the idea of ruination, like mm. people's reputations being ruined. And mm. if there's anybody with a ruined reputation starting this book instead of avoiding it, it's Cecily, I think. Yeah, I like ruination as a concept because I think it's so silly, 
right? I think it's something that we <laughs> why <laughs> I think that's so funny. Um, I think it. I don't. Th- I mean, I think people take it very seriously, but I think that the idea that one could be ruined forever by virtue of you know, taking their own pleasure or, you know, doing a thing that they think is important or that they think is, um, you know, world changing is silly because ultimately you might be ruined in a world, in a particular world, but is that world the world that is most important to you, that is the most necessary for us. Um, And I think in the last two series, I've really played with this idea of like who, what is nobility versus what is being noble, the act of being noble, um, acting, acting with nobility versus, you know, being born with into it, capital N versus small, lowercase N. Um, So I really like ruination. Also, I like ruination because I'm a historical romance lover, right? So there's always that sort of like, ooh, what if, what if she gets ruined? And of course, if she gets ruined, the Duke is going to marry her and they're going to live happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) It, it and, is interesting to, uh, I'm sure, to write historical romance. It's really interesting to read it because there are so many rules and you have to work within certain parameters um, in a way that modern society doesn't really have. So, But you know what's really interesting about it? And I'm sure, I mean, you edit Lisa and Eloisa James um, and Lenora Bell and Diana Quincy. I mean, I think you the people who you edit are all these really, they're all writers. We all kind of come at, our books with a real modern sensibility. And I think part of what we're doing, all of us, that whole list is um, really underscoring how the world hasn't, the, maybe the, the rules have changed and the laws have changed, but the way the world treats women and other marginalized people isn't hugely different. I mean- Not different enough. Exactly. For sure. The value, of course, of writing historicals is that you can really tighten the net, the web around the action and make it obviously increase the stakes. Um, But I really think that certainly all those authors that you edit and and I'd like to hear you talk about, you know, how you think about historicals and when you when you bring on an author, because. I think we all do come at it with this sense of like we're writing 21st century themes with this net really tight around them. Yeah. I've read historicals for such a long time that I've seen the evolution of writers, um, you know, because back in the day, I also edited Joanna Lindsay and her books represented a different time in history than um, we have right now. So I feel like the sensibility has become a lot more modern as the writers, you know, are younger. Um, yeah. you know, and have a different generation. And I find that thing very fascinating as opposed to, you know, Kathleen Woodowis, who had a very particular um, view of the world. And, you know, you could argue, although maybe not true, but she used, say, um, rape as a way of women not having to give consent. Right. And now everything's about consent. You know, you wouldn't need a book without it. Huge change, right? I mean, vocal, informed, enthusiastic consent, right? Right. Um, I, I mean, I just think it's so fascinating. I think so few people realize how romance really does reflect the world in such a 
powerful way. And in a way that I think it's because it's so internal, right? It's right. really a genre about feelings yeah, and about internal experience. And I think we are all, we're doing a kind of emotional work around the world that around the way the world is that other right. genres don't feel like they're doing quite the same way. And that's not to say right. we we're better. I'm just saying our, our goal seems to be a different, we're on a different path. Right. Well, I mean, you know that I'm a hair fan and mm-hmm. have always loved Georgette Hare. And you can even look at how she deals with, um, with roles in her books. If you look at a book, like say Friday's child, where she's just hanging out with this group of young boys and she does everything that they do, but every time she does it, she gets in massive trouble. And I think Hare was really talking about sex roles in her books too. Yeah. You know, and, and how women fit into society and what they could do. And then, you know, the tightness of the net around them was obviously stronger than today. But I, I think that that's always been a role of romance writers. Yeah. And it gives readers this because because it ends with happily ever after. Right. And it gives us this sense of partnership being, being able to find somebody in the world who understands us and cares about the way that we are in the world and the way that we think about the world. And ultimately, you know, it ends with this idea that it will all be okay because we are together. Like, cause we, right. w- right. you know, we are living in hope. Right. Then I, I think that the power of romance is that it gives it allows us as readers to do that emotional and intellectual work around, and we're doing it in the text. Yeah. All while, yeah. you know, watching people get just justifiably punched in the face. <laughs> um, it's, it's, <laughs> I was going to take it back to Clayfist just for a moment, yeah, because let's. in the book that she's coming out with this summer, um, you know, obviously there's this really cool romance in, in the, um, you know, in, in the foreground, but in the background is the story of Sebastian. And he's an older guy now, you know, yeah. he's a grandfather. And it looks at like a successful marriage Sebastian, 25, meaning years later. Devil in winter, Sebastian. Yeah, yes. Saint I'm Vincent. Sorry. For, for people who haven't read it, yes. So, I mean, that is almost the most heartwarming part of the entire book. Yes. Yeah is how much they understand each other after all this time and, and how fresh it still is. And um, so anyway, that's kind of the promise of romance books and, and why I love them. But like, yeah, and but Lisa is doing that same thing now where there's the one of the joys of being a romance reader and surely everybody out there listening who knows and loves romance will agree is reading a later book by an author and seeing the earlier characters, you know, dance through. And I... I, again, because I think I cut my teeth on these old historicals where, you know, a Stephanie Lawrence character, forget it. Like there were 42,000 sinsters and they were in right. every book and it was yeah. so nice to see them happy. And yeah. I think what Lisa's doing that's so interesting is we're seeing them happy as older couples too. And yeah. that is so rare. You don't see that. No, you really don't. But it goes back to the one world because uh, she writes people who um, are further into the Victorian period, obviously. You don't have a choice. They're aging. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, if, if you if you create one world, which which you do and, and she does in certain yeah, No ways. one's ever going to die, though. So at some point, it's going to turn into paranormals. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> I have realized, I did realize when I hit book, like, I don't know, 11 or 12, I was like, oh, I have, I was doing like one a year. Right. So it was, you know, every book was one year later and now, and I realized about five or six books ago that I had to <laughs> tighten the timelines so that I wasn't, you know, marching forward to, you know, someday I'm writing the 1970s. So I remember, I remember Jude Deborah once told me every single one of her characters lived till 99 and was perfectly happy. So, there you go. <laughs> so if you're doing a family tree for any of her characters, figure it out for 99 yeah. years. <laughs> I mean, you can't kill them. That's it's it breaks the covenant with the reader. So, right, which is which is why the um, you know Bridgerton's started with yeah. the father already gone. Yeah, yeah, of that, course. that couldn't have been the first romance that she did. No, yeah. Um. So, Sarah, when are we all going to travel to London again? Besides outside of books. Oh, I'm so sad. I want to go. Somebody I know just booked tickets to London and I was like, oh, can we do that now? Is that happening? Can we? <laughs> I think so. I mean, she did. I don't think I can yet because I have an unvaccinated seven-year-old. But the moment the shot gets in that kid's arm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting on a plane. Um, I really, I mean, talk about, so this, this, this book, Bombshell, right? I think, and I think a lot of people listening have probably noticed this, but we've writing in the last 18 months has been really hard in the sense, I mean, everything's been hard. Every job has been hard, but this idea, especially romance where you wanted, you know, you have to be writing kind of hope and happiness and joy. There's a real, there's been a real sense of, Oh, everything is very weighted down. And for me, I'm, I'm like the worst possible writer in the sense that I am an extreme extrovert. So sitting in my office writing is the worst experience. You know, I'm a writer. I write at bars. I write at coffee shops. I write, you know, out with noise and people. Um, but when I wrote Bombshell, I, I hadn't been to London. I had, had to cancel. I was supposed to go in March of last year and do a bunch of research actually around you know, the, the characters, there's a, there's a girl gang, a legendary girl gang from the, um, the 19th century, the late 19th century called the 40 elephants that I wanted to do a bunch of research on there. I had made plans to be at the, the British library. They were, they were going to pull me all of their records on the 40 elephants and, and you know, court documents that. and interviews and things. And then I couldn't go. So, um, I had, it was March of last year. Um, and so I wrote, I wrote this book, you know, thank God the British library is amazing and helped me a ton with getting me scans and things of the things that I needed just so that I could get a sense of these were real criminals. <laughs> this was a, oh, okay. a gang of, a, of criminal masterminds who were, they were running these massive shoplifting rings and they had very clever ways of getting shoplifted items in and out of stores and to the point where they were so well known that when they would show up in a store it would just cause mayhem people people would like run out of the store so it wasn't quite ever going to be the same experience right. but i was really interested in these women like what how were they running i knew i was i probably was going to want to ride a heist at some point or some kind of you know interesting choreographed dance. I wanted to know how they were doing all that stuff. Anyway, this is all separate. 
No, and no, I've never talked about the 40 elephants before. What, what were they named after? Like, how did they get that name? So they were the women's side of the elephant and castle gang, which elephant castle is a London neighborhood on the South bank. Yeah. Um, and so if you've, if you like me have watched a lot of Peaky Blinders, you understand, you can kind of get a visual for, it was just a big gang of thugs and they ran Southwark, which is, you know, on the South side of London. Um, And they had the, the kind of their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, their wives were the women's side of the business. And it is actually very similar to Peaky Blinders in the sense that the women, the 40 elephants, were actually book they took the bets on they you know they were bookmakers they took bets on horse races and on other things and then alice diamond who was the she was literally they called her the queen she was the queen of the 40 elephants she ran the shoplifting ring i mean the stories are wild she falsified papers to get a job at a munitions factory so that she could steal explosives if she needed oh them and like she was and one of the things that she in a in a court in court documents or in an interview with police with scotland yard they basically asked her like how did you pull it all off how 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 does this work and she said like well all of you believe that women are soft and meek and we don't we don't have brains in our heads so it's just very easy to do the thing and then have, and have no one notice that we've done it. I mean, that's so perfect. It's like a Sarah McLean novel. That part works. (laughs) Yeah. I can see how, how that concept would be really inspirational. Yeah. So, I mean, she, she knew it, right. We, and that's because women know it. We know we, and we still do it today where we, we manipulate the world because by using this idea that we're small and soft and meek in order to get what we need. I mean, it's right. because humans do, this is how humans, it's all animals do this, right? You do what you can right. to survive. So um, I was really fascinated by that. There were suffragettes who were part of it. I mean, they were part of the kind of more violent edge of the suffrage movement. Right. They were part of, a, they did a lot of union um, work. Right. The suffragette movement was a lot more violent, I think, and than people in know England in England than even in America. Yeah, I think. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, England had these kind of aside from having the legal bounds that we all had. It also has one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently with the royal family is we Americans don't quite ever they don't quite understand how. It is incredibly, there's also a class issue in England. Like you can't move within classes as easily as it seems here. Well, yeah, because people don't even have the same accents. Right, right. You can't inherit, you can't move into the aristocracy unless you marry into it and have a child, right? So there's just no way to get your, to get yourself up a level. Um, So I think violence was a key piece of this in England because you had to fight for what you had to fight and take to grow. Anyway, so I was fascinated. I'm fascinated by all that. And and I didn't get to England for um, the research on this book. So I'm very eager to get back and and do work. Um, But also, I feel like writing this book during a pandemic, I wrote my community like I wrote women who are ride or die for each other. I wrote relationships that 
um, honor those friendships. I think it was really important to me to write a love story where the hero and hero, the hero honors the heroine's friendships. And there's a moment, which I won't spoil at the end, where Caleb is kind of welcomed into the bells. And it was important to me that I was writing this kind of big, expansive community of people who were right. powerful and cool and you wanted to be a part of, like, you want to submit and your so application. So she doesn't leave them at the end. He's added in. So there's addition, not subtraction. So exactly. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the other piece, right? And other, in, so often mm-hmm. our instinct in romance is to close out the, the work or the, you know, in this case, the kind of the fighting. <laughs> right. But instead, you know, Caleb becomes a piece of it. And that's, that's what will happen, I think, over the whole series. The heroes will all you know, have to learn to become a part of it, which is interesting because there is a hero coming in the future who will, I assume, have some have some problems with making that choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Sarah, as always, I'm so excited that you have a book coming out. I loved Bombshell. I loved working on it. I love how it looks. I think it's going to be a perfect publication. And I so appreciate you coming on today. It's so great to talk to you as always. Thank you for having me. And thank you to libraries everywhere for being so supportive of my books in the past and of Bombshell. Um, I'm really, I, I pinch myself every time I think about that book being in libraries. So. And we have a new narrator too, for the audios that like library patrons can listen to. Uh, Yes. The new narrator is Mary Jane Wells. And I'm so excited. I mean, she's, magnificent she's brilliant so audio readers love her yeah yeah so anyways sarah it's gonna be so exciting um to have your book come out on august 24th you're already working on the next book in the series which will come out the following summer and um you know love happy reading for people thank you thank you thank you for listening to the library love fest podcast for more information on this week's episode go to librarylovefest.com Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.